How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Welcome to Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton. Middle East turmoil and Japan's nuclear disaster are raising questions about how America should power its economy. Crude oil has risen nearly 20% this year, driving gasoline to prices last seen three years ago. How will consumers respond during the upcoming summer travel season? How should government respond for the long run? Has Fukushima doomed new nuclear plants in this country? For the next hour, we'll discuss America's energy future with our live audience in San Francisco and three experts. T.J. Glothier is a consultant to several energy companies and former Deputy U.S. Secretary of Energy under President Clinton. Tony Knowles is chair of the National Energy Policy Institute and former Democratic Governor of Alaska. And Jim Sweeney is director of the Precourt Center for Energy Efficiency at Stanford. Please welcome them to Climate One. Uh, Jim Sweeney, let's begin with you. Uh, the Middle East turmoil uh, is, put that in, in historic context for us. We've seen oil supply shocks in 73 and 79, uh, then again around the first Gulf War. I mean, how, in, in terms of historic magnitude, how is this as an energy event, what's going on with oil supply in the Middle East? Okay, first, as a non-energy event, but as a potential transformation of a part of the world, it's may not be with any historic precedent. In terms of energy, we've actually had very little reductions in the energy supply so far, as opposed to uh, in 1973 and 1974, where, where we had the actual sharp reduction in oil supplies in the world and the, and the, uh, the so-called Arab oil embargo. It wasn't an effective embargo, but it was meant as such. But what we're seeing now here is uh, prices on the crude oil markets going up, basically on the expectation that there's a high risk that the oil supplies will be cut off. And we just don't know what's, whether they will or not. If they do, uh, with as broad a region at which we're having turmoil in the Middle East, which could include Saudi Arabia, we could have tremendously high oil costs, even relative to what we've had in the past, with tremendously high macroeconomic consequences. If, on the other hand, uh, we have a set of transitions that don't shut down the oil prices, we'll have oil, uh, don't shut down the oil supplies, we'll have oil prices dropping down somewhat, but probably staying in the $100 range. T.J. Glasser, how, how do you see it, the impact on consumers and also on, on, on policy? There's a lot of uncertainty, Jim Sweeney says. How do you read it as a former Washington insider at the DOE? Well, it seems to me that uh, what we're dealing with in the oil sector is a long-term market where prices are going to go up substantially. Uh, whether you believe in peak oil exactly or you just look at the dynamics of more and more cars being on the road in China and uh, the trends around around the world, 
with less oil being discovered and increases in usage, prices are going to go up. This is accelerating it. This may be a short-term blip, but as Jim says, there's a lot of uncertainty about exactly how quickly it might come back down. In the past, we've seen producers like Saudi Arabia increase production in order to keep prices at a moderate level, moderate uh, in people's interpretations, but enough to keep us from really taking drastic action, policy actions, to reduce usage. And I guess from a policy point of view, to go to your question, uh, if prices were going up substantially, if there are really serious disruptions in our supply, we would introduce more serious policies to increase the purchase of more efficient vehicles. Uh, we would do things that would reduce our, our real dependence on oil. But the industry has always been able to successfully keep us from doing that, from keep the policies from being very extreme. And I suspect we'll see that again in the next five years or ten years. It's going to take a long time. People uh, you know, don't react quickly. Do you think industry, by the industry, I presume you mean the oil industry, do you yes. think they'll be able to modulate the situation this time as they have in the past, or is this time different? Well, this time is different politically, as Jim said. Uh, but I think the oil production for the next five years probably will be able to be modulated that way. Maybe prices will get into the 4 and $5 range for a gallon of gasoline at the, the stations, as they already are here in this region. Uh, but I don't think that we're going to see price alone or disruptions in the market alone driving the policies as much as, as they should from a, an analytic perspective. You really look at the reasons for us to get off of oil. Tony Knowles, you're a former governor of a large energy uh, exporting producing state. How do you think this affects the political dynamic of energy in America? Well, the, the energy shocks that we're going through now, you know, we've seen this movie before. Uh, this is nothing new. Uh, what is different is that when will we ever have the ability to learn from these instances and get a national energy policy? Um, we know for a fact that uh, we have to reduce our dependence on imported oil, uh, that the petrodollar dictators that now have a control over a lot of our foreign policy and our economy, uh, how can we uh, have a healthier and uh, more sustainable energy source. Uh, these are not new issues. Unfortunately, I think Tom Friedman said it best, is that our national energy policy is more the sum total of our best lobbyists rather than our best wisdom. And that's where what the National Energy Policy Institute hopes, hopes to add to the discussion is to let science and economics be the flashlight out of this darkness so that we can get a comprehensive policy that we reduce our use of oil, that we reduce our CO2 and pollutant emissions, and have a better and stronger economy and a better and stronger national security. Well, let's talk a moment about cars. Let's bring this down to the consumer level. I mean, the uh, the gas now, I think the national average is around two, 360. It was 280 in, in 2010. Hybrid sales, uh, Jim Sweeney, were, were uh, actually went down as a percentage of new sales in 2010 to 2.4% versus 2.9%. Prius sales are up. Um, what are we seeing in, in auto sales so far? Are consumers responding? Or as some people say, consumers need to think oil prices will be high for a long time for, for it to impact a big purchase like a car. I don't have, and I 
I better say we don't have the data about this immediate response. It's very new, but, yeah. But the last time we had the oil prices uh, spiked, we had a, a large increase in the sales of small cars. We moved away from SUVs. The ridership of public transport went to uh, new recent peaks. So people were responding. Uh, in fact, our consumption of, of oil turned down uh, when the gasoline prices went up in the last peak. I anticipate that that's going to happen now. But as you point out, expectations matter a lot. If people believe that this is a very temporary situation, they're not going to buy a whole new different type of car based on a very very short-term um, situation. If people believe that the oil prices are going to stay very high for a long period of time, then they're more likely to take that into account the purchase. So we just don't know at this point about what's happening, but I anticipate that we'll see something similar to what we've had in the past. TJ, can I add something to that? I think this is an area where I'm very hopeful that our technology approach is actually coming at the right time for different reasons. The auto companies, I think, all believe we're going to be in a, a world where we put a price on carbon and we began to regulate efficiencies in a more aggressive way. So they started producing more hybrid cars. And the hybrid cars now are coming in all different models, different mm-hmm. sizes. There's a lot of choice to consumers. We're going into all electric cars, I think, in a similar way. There are only a couple of models right now. Tesla is not in the price range for most of us, but Tesla has done the most dramatic thing for the, the name of electric cars. They well, I, had, I had an electric car in 1980 for a couple of years. It was a stodgy little car that would go 50 miles an hour. It worked to commute back and forth to work, but now Tesla has made an electric car that is the fastest, sexiest car out there. So the image of an electric car can change. And I think we're, we're actually going to see this technology move and consumers responding in ways that uh, really help us make some significant progress. That's all very helpful. However, I point out that, that hybrids have been on the market for 11 or 12 years now, and it's moved up to a market share of almost 3%. Of, of new sales of, or total? Of new sales. That's right. Almost 3% after 11 years. I, I, and it was easier to move to a hybrid than it's going to be to move to an electric vehicle. Therefore, although I think technology is there, I don't anticipate as rapid a change to electric vehicles as we've had to hybrids. And 11 years after the beginning, we're up to 3% of the but new the cars. the first five years, the only hybrids you could buy were a Honda Insight or a Prius. I had an Insight. It was a little two-passenger car. It wasn't really a car that most people would choose. Now you've got a lot of choice. You've got them in a range of sizes, SUVs and other things. And I think the analysis says if you go to a hybrid, you can get a 30% reduction in fuel use. And if you go to a plug-in hybrid, you can get another 30% reduction yeah. There are lots of things other than going all electric. I think all electric, the batteries are going to limit us, but we've, we've now got more choices. We've got to make progress, I think. I hope you're right. I just am not counting on as fast a change as you expect. But, but Jim, when the, in the early stages of the hybrid, gas was at one or two dollars. And if gas is at three or four or five dollars, doesn't that really change the decision and the metric for consumers who are considering uh, making that switch? Yes, but gas has been up to three, four 
dollars for the last few years. And even now, we're only up to 3% market share of hybrids. I think it's going to increase of hybrids. My point is that, that the next wave of technologies, the electrics, probably aren't going to come in much faster than that. But the point you make is, is correct, and it was often been asked, uh, how many economists does it take to screw in a light bulb? And the answer is zero, because they believe the invisible hand of Adam Smith in the marketplace will correct the deficiency of lighting equilibrium. <laughs> that being said, uh, the prices do work. And that is the most cost-effective way for the consumer at the margin to make the change. The difficulty, and Jim has pointed out, is that the uh, price goes up, driven up sometimes by speculation as much as, uh, or futures as much as the supply of oil. But it goes up, but then it'll, it crashes right back down. So there's no permanence to that, which is why people have gone to at least suggesting some type of um, oil tax, uh, some type of uh, carbon tax, uh, or some type of cap and trade. Unfortunately, none of those are politically viable. Tony Knowles is former governor of Alaska. We're also here with T.J. Glothier, former official at the Department of Energy, and Jim Sweeney from Stanford University. We're talking about energy in America. Uh, let's stick on price signals and policy. Uh, Jim Sweeney, you were part of a group called CalSTEP, I believe the Strategic Energy Partnership, that proposed a gasoline tax a penny a month over some period of time. Tell us about that and what that recommendation is. Well, and it's very consistent with, with what Governor Knowles has mentioned. The first step is we really got to get the price right. And getting the price right means taking into account all of the, what we'll call externalities, all of those harms that are associated with the use of energy, release of carbon dioxide and the national security con- consequences of using more particular types of energy, and roll those into the prices so that individuals can start making choices that are, so that their choices are consistent with the damages that they're they're doing. So the CalSTAR proposal is to uh, slowly increase the gasoline price, increase it by a penny of a month, penny per month, over the next 10 years. That would lead in... um, a 10-year time to an increase in the gasoline tax of $1.20 a gallon. It's actually quite modest if you think about it the following way. Gasoline prices have changed more rapidly than that on a yearly basis based upon what OPEC has done or what disruptions have happened in the Middle East. And all those additional revenues are captured by other countries exporting oil to the United States. I'd rather it be a tax system where you capture those revenues into uh, uh, revenues for the federal government or for the state of California to help solve the financial problems of the states. Much better to put it in our hands than put it in the hands of the OPEC nations. And California, just let me say, California last raised its gas tax in early 1990 should also mention that as part of this group uh, include Volvo and Chrysler, as well as former Secretary of State and Secretary of the Treasury, George Schultz. So it's quite a uh, – T.J. Glothier. Uh, I have the greatest respect for my friend Jim Sweeney, but uh, it, you're an economist. And it seems to me this is the classic proposal from the economist. It is the right answer, and if we could actually do it politically, it would be great. But politically, I just think a, a tax of any sort isn't going to happen. 
I was in the White House with Clinton and Gore back in the early 90s. They put the BTU tax on the table to try to get a 50-cent tax per billion BTUs as a way to really shift our energy use. After the debate with the Congress, we ended up with 4.3-cent increase in gasoline taxes. That was it, and I think that's the last increase there's been. And some people think that's part of why Congress flipped in 94. Well, it was used as an argument against Clinton that said he increased taxes on all Americans, which technically was true. Tony, let me me jump to Jim Sweeney's defense uh, on this. (laughs) Good, we're getting Um, some action up here. Good. (laughs) That if uh, we actually modeled uh, through the National Energy Modeling System, we modeled uh, something very similar to what Jim has suggested, a little more modest. It was basically an oil tax. It was the equivalent of eight cents a gallon per year for 20 years. And what it accomplished was that it would reduce our oil use by 1.5 million barrels a day. And that that's a lot of oil. Currently, um, we import, what, 11? We, we, we import today about 12 million barrels a day. We utilize about 18 million barrels a day. So that's the context we put it in. Are we going to do away with all imported oil? No. But all we want to do is at least not be in the uh, stranglehold uh, of uh, other nations in terms of determining our foreign policy, the influence on that, and our economy. One of the things that you can do, and I'd love to hear TJ's answer to this, in terms of the political viability of a tax, it's what you do with the recycling of the revenues that can also could make a difference. And I'll throw in a distinct Alaska flavor here in the sense of if you recycle those revenues right back to the consumer, and we modeled the amount of money that it would take in the first year, if you did it to every man, woman, and child, the first year, eight cents a gallon on gasoline would generate $81 a person. By the year 2030, 20 years from now, it would generate 14 and $41 a per person, which would certainly offset the costs uh, of uh, participating. And when you game the system, and actually say, well, I'm going to go buy me a hybrid so I don't use nearly as much gasoline, and therefore you've helped reinforce the system rather than game it. So in, in, just to clarify, in Alaska, petroleum extraction is taxed and no. checks go to? Uh, actually, uh, what we have is a little bit different. <laughs> we have a permanent fund, which is the royalties from oil are put aside into a fund, the earnings of which are then distributed on a per capita basis. Okay. But it's the same, and it's, I can guarantee it's popular. Very popular. <laughs> can I add to two point, quick points to the political viability? In British uh, Columbia, they, in fact, have a carbon dioxide tax, raising money that way, and then as a fund that's able to give it back to uh, um, back into the political system and to various entities, and uh, it seems to be working. It's, it's actually uh, happened in a political process that's not that different than ours. But second, in the United States, our overall tax system is best described as Byzantine. Uh, at some point, I believe that the whole tax system in the United States is going to have to be reformed. There's commissions calling for that. As part of an entire reform, I believe there's a good chance of moving to taxes on the things that we don't like and reduce the taxes on the things we do like. And as part of an overall restructuring, 
then it may also be possible to get this. But I agree, it's, uh, any tax has been very difficult to go forward. Even a revenue neutral tax, which I think you could, could create, has been hard, but as part of a complete transformation of the tax system, there's a hope. And if I could clarify, I'd be delighted to see one or both of these approaches work. I just think the question is uh, when this political establishment will be ready to do it. Well, the head of the AFL-CIO and the head of the United States Chamber of Congress really raised some eyebrows recently, went to Congress and said, we ought to raise the gasoline tax. Now, what they want to do with it is fund exclusively infrastructure, which some people say actually increases the amount of vehicle miles traveled and might actually increase petroleum use. So, James Sweeney, I'd like your view on that. But that was an interesting sort of Republican-Democrat unified call saying we need to tax something that raise taxes on gas. Jim Sweeney? That's one good political approach. Uh, frankly, the infrastructure of the United States has, has been deteriorating for the last 40 years. And if we take some amount of those revenues and put it to dealing with some of the deteriorating infrastructure, I think that can be beneficial. Um, there's, it is also true that the better infrastructure you have for transportation, the more people transport themselves. Um, so there will be a feedback from that, that approach, but if you couple it with the gasoline tax, I believe the dominant effect will be a reduction in oil use uh, and a more pleasant ride when you're actually driving on some of the currently deteriorated roads and safer bridges. And I, I think um, safer bridges would be a very good thing. In, 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 in decreasing your use of oil, you not only look at your national security issue, but if you reduce a million point five barrels a day, uh, you're going to reduce a cumulative amount over those 20 years of 2.8 billion tons of CO2 emissions. So it really is a win-win situation. One of the easier policies we have to reduce our use of imported oil and reduce CO2 emissions is um, using LNG for heavy trucks. Liquefied natural, natural Liquefied gas. Liquefied natural gas. And today, these class 6, 7, and 8 trucks that run 24-7, 365, they use 2 million barrels of oil a day, equivalent in diesel. That is a lot. Uh, that's a ba- basically 10 to 15, that's about 12% of our total oil usage uh, in this country are those heavy, heavy trucks. That's all imported oil, too, because when you cut, when you reduce your use of oil, you reduce imported oil. That's, e- economists will tell you that. So given that, uh, if you want to completely make a domestic uh, source of energy, you'll use natural gas. And this is something that Boone Pickens has uh, promoted and I think done an outstanding job in educating people on how to get rid of it. Uh, LNG, it's cheaper. Uh, it will recover the cost that is necessary to, uh, to, convert the, to convert the vehicle, and it's a great way to have a win-win. TJ? I think it's a great policy, and the way the government could help, I think, is to do some work on the infrastructure. We've got the major highway system. We've got uh, truck stops all over the country. If we really spent some money helping build out the natural gas refueling parts of those truck stops and maybe provide some help to trucking companies for the conversions of their trucks, 
uh, there's a huge benefit. And as Tony says, they're running all the time. And uh, that part of the system, natural gas, would be terrific use. And, and related to natural gas, because I think natural gas is a, is a bright spot, really a game changer in, in the energy system right now. Remember, we've had this cash for clunkers program, this ill-thought-out program for, for uh, light-duty vehicles uh, that just, just move, move the, the timing in which people bought the cars up a little bit and, and a heavy subsidy. Well, there is a cash for clunkers program that could make sense, and that's some of these old, fully depreciated but high heat rate electric generating plants that use a lot of coal and spew a lot of not just carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, but a lot of particulates and other pollutants. That may be a place where we have a cash for clunkers, buying down and getting rid of some of these old clunkers and replacing them with natural gas plants. Uh, it's, in fact, more than a 50% reduction in carbon dioxide. You get some reduction because the chemistry is different. You get other reduction because the plants, the new natural gas plants are just much more efficient users of energy than the old coal plants. So that may be a, a, another thing that we should be doing in order to accelerate the, the movement away from some of the very old clunkers of uh, electric generating plants power, powered by coal. And you reduce the 2 million barrels a day uh, of diesel for natural gas. You also will reduce almost a billion tons of CO2 with the less left. So, again, a win-win situation. So, you know what we're doing up here? We're actually creating, at least from the oil security, we're creating a national policy. Throw in fee baits, and you've got 5 million barrels a day that you've saved and no new technology no additions to the budget, uh, no no effect on the deficit, and very little cost. Good, the four of us can just vote it in. <laughs> there we go. Got it. Um, Tony Knowles is former governor of Alaska. Jim Sweeney is director of the Precourt Center for Energy Efficiency at Stanford University. And T.J. Glothier is former deputy secretary of the U.S. Department of Energy. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, let's, you mentioned, uh, Tony Knowles, you mentioned fee bait. Tell us uh, what a fee bait is and how it could be implemented. <laughs> A fee bait is, is a great way, and I believe in California that there is a fee bait program going on. Am I correct I'm on that? I'm not sure. Didn't a a fee bait is a combination of a fee that is paid if you use a less efficient vehicle in your class, and the, uh, that fee then will fund what is the rebate if you buy a more efficient vehicle in your class. And so people say, well, is that the same thing as a CAFE standard? Uh, no, it's not because what it does, you can adjust the pivot point between where you would get a uh, rebate and where you would pay a fee uh, to where it will always increase the, give incentives to increase the efficiency of the vehicles that you're pur- purchasing. Now, somebody says, well, look, I, I drive a, I got a big family and we live in a rural part of the state and, and I got to have that SUV. I'm not going to have a little compact car. So what you do to make it politically palatable and it doesn't really affect the, uh, the purpose of the program is to, within that class of SUVs, you will have a pivot point which will give you a rebate if you buy a hybrid uh, 
Escalati or whatever it is. Right. And if you then if you buy just the uh, conventional uh, style, which would be more less efficient, you put the fee based upon not miles per gallon, but gallons per mile. And if you establish, say, a $2,000 per tenth of a mile per gallon, gallon per mile, that would give you, most cars would get a four or $500 one way or the other, depending on the vehicle that they bought. Cost or credit. Right. And, and the nice thing about it is that you would establish the pivot point so that it would be revenue neutral. It would have no government money involved. The people that would pay for the rebates are the ones that pay the fees. And uh, it's just a nice way of doing it. It's a logical way of doing it. And, and when we modeled it, what would be considered a modest uh, fee bait would save over a 20-year period uh, 700,000 uh, barrels per day uh, and save over 600 million tons of CO2. Jim so, Sweeney, how about that? If I buy a gas hog, I'll pay a little extra. If you buy a hybrid, you pay a little less. I'm subsidizing. Uh, you know, it's revenue neutral. No, the concept make, uh, makes lots of sense. What we've we got to take into account is that we also have the corporate average fuel efficiency standards. And with, with uh, the administration developing a marketability on those standards amongst the uh, different manufacturers. So... Let's say that you had a fee bait which caused everybody to get more fuel-efficient vehicles than they would otherwise. But if we still have this corporate average fuel efficiency standard that the manufacturers have no incentive to go beyond, then they adjust their marketing plans and you end up with the same efficiency. So that when we... These are really two different ways to get to the same end. And... There's benefits, there's goods and bads about the two alternative ways of doing it, but they really are substitutes for one another. We've, in the past, starting in 1975, chosen the corporate average fuel efficiency standard approach. We made some major mistakes in implementing it by differentiating between cars and trucks, and therefore um, you had many vehicles that you would think about as cars now have been categorized as trucks. And and the SUV uh, and there's movement towards towards the SUVs, but but many of those problems are being fixed uh, in in the the current rulemaking that's going on, and I'm hoping it'll get fixed. So these are substitutes for one another, both aiming at the same end. T.J. Glothier, let me go to the defense of the cafe standards, and I'm not sure you were attacking it, but no. more it's just a different approach. The fee bait or some of the other approaches are changing consumer behavior. You know, what do you choose to buy? One of the problems is what's available in the market. What can you afford your, you know, go out and buy? The CAFE standard was a way to really get the producers of vehicles to make a major change in what they were providing, what they were offering in the marketplace. And it worked really well. What we found was that the U.S. manufacturing industry was very good at responding once they were told you need to have these efficiency levels. They figured out how to do it. And in the 70s to the 80s, the efficiency increased dramatically. Then we stopped raising the rates, and they didn't change at all. What we did is we made cars bigger, faster, heavier, and all the engineering improvements went into those elements and didn't do anything for efficiency. Now we're back on the track again because the CAFE standards have been increased, and that's what's pushing the manufacturers, I think, to bring more hybrids into the market, to bring a lot of other innovations. So it's really 
figure out how do we get their manufacturing uh, enterprise to focus on this and could bring you, the ingenuity in. Could, could you put the fee bait either at the manufacturer's level or the retail level? That's a possibility. You could yeah. Do, yeah. It, I want to remind people that in 1973, before the oil crisis, the average fuel efficiency on cars on the road was 12 miles per gallon. <laughs> 12 miles per gallon. And we moved that through the CAFE standards from 12 miles a gallon to somewhere over uh, 20 miles a gallon from 1970, basically from 1975 to 85, over a 10-year time period. We could have kept moving it up, but as, as TJ said, Oil prices went down. People started snoozing. Why do you care about oil? Prices are down so that the standards didn't keep moving up. And it's the fact that standards didn't keep moving up is why we didn't continue to get the gains that we, we did from 1975 to 1985. And another thing, uh, historical reminder is that in 2007, President George W. Bush signed a mandate of 40 miles per gallon by, by 2020. We're almost there. I think uh, the current standards call for 35 and a half miles per gallon by 2016. Jim Sweeney, do you think that they ought to be raised further uh, beyond 35, go to 40? There's talk of even last fall that some people floated ideas of 60 miles a gallon. I think they should continually to go go up. Um, I don't actually know the right level at this point, but I think that what the standards that Obama announced when he announced it seemed just about right from the analysis that existed at that time. Over time, they should continue to go up uh, beyond what, what Obama has already already announced. But if you do it too quickly, you essentially start reducing some of the functionality of vehicles. So, because, in fact, there are some people with big families. And there are some some people that, that use cars for... Um, for do, uh, towing boats or, or use it for uh, construction purposes. We don't want to squeeze those out. And so it really is an analytical process is about what, what is the optimal level. Tony knows. You, you also have to take into account you have your requirement of what it has to be, but what are your uh, sanctions on if you don't meet that? And right. today it's just you pay a fee. So if the technology is not available... They'll just pay a fee. And, and the fee is only $100 a car. Mercedes-Benz pays almost every year. They just they throw it away, right. and the consumers pay it. So, and, and they. So if you wanted to make it work, if you really want to press the, sci- press the science on it, you're going to have to make the consequences a little more severe. It, but all of the major manufacturers selling into the United States have, have met those CAFE yeah, standards right. over time. So you, 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 you can design the system so they'll be met. And we have, in fact, in the past designed the system. They were met. And it's made a tre- tremendous change over time. Just the point that's being made is we've got to keep making tremendous changes. Because there have been long periods where they're flat. And you, as you right. said, there's no incentive once you meet it to go, to go an inch further. Right. Let's talk about ethanol. We haven't talked about ethanol yet. I mean, does that have a role in uh, weaning the country off oil? No. T.J. Glothier? <laughs> I don't think it does. I'm not an ethanol fan. Uh, it's fine. Uh, it's an alternative, but its impact on the food supply is really a serious concern. Impact on corn. A net energy balance doesn't really gain very much. It's really a matter of, of shifting to a different form of energy. Uh, 
it is an okay piece of the puzzle, but I wouldn't put a lot of stock in it in terms of any major change long term. I want to partially disagree, but mostly agree with my friend here. Um, the way it's implemented now, the, the, the ethanol, the corn-based ethanol, is fundamentally a subsidy to the agricultural states and to Archer Daniels Midland and, and the agribusiness here. It doesn't do much for the environment, so I'm in complete agreement with this. With that, however, the technology of, of cellulosic ethanol is improving, and with a different generation of of, of uh, cellulosic ethanol, the it can be quite different. In fact, with the cellulosic ethanol, you don't. The optimal thing is not to use corn, but to use fast-growing crops that that you can put on degraded land that will not have the same effect on the food food stock. So that has a hope, but I agree completely with the way we're doing it now. It's, it's, it's a small trap. But it may be cellulosic biofuels, ethanol and other forms of algae-based fuels or other things. If we can go to cellulosic-based fuels, that's great. That is a contribution. Absolutely. There, there's no question that the early primaries in Iowa and Nevada have done more for our national energy policy than any other force. Uh, the 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 more damage. More damage policy. If the uh, the question on ethanol and biomass in general is that when people talk about renewables, that the vast majority of renewables are biomass, not wind or solar, as people think. So when. You talk about that, you have to be very careful, as Jim very correctly pointed out, with some cellulosic uh, ethanol, it's okay. But they don't take into account, you need to take into account the full life cycle carbon effect rather than just at a, at a snapshot at a given point. I can still scratch my head if you, how they consider burning wood a zero carbon, uh, fuel. So. Figure that out. Tony Knowles is a former governor of Alaska. Our other guests today at Climate One are T.J. Glothier, former deputy secretary of energy, and Jim Sweeney, the director of the Precourt Center for Energy Efficiency at Stanford. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, biofuels can be all fine and great, uh, but a lot of people in the oil industry will say biofuels can't scale, that, that, that it's nice to do it in a beaker or a flask or a pool somewhere, but they can't scale fast enough to make a dent and a voracious appetite for liquid transportation fuels. TJ, is that fair? Uh, I understand the argument, and I think some of the technologies have that problem, but there are other approaches coming along that I think will do it. I work with a company called Solozyme here in South San Francisco, which is an algae-based oil company, and their process is actually not to have uh, algae growing in ponds out in the environment, but to have them in big tanks. So it's like a, being in a brewery. Basically, you've got fermentation tanks, and you can grow the algae there, and that can scale. You can manage the quality control and the cost and the scaling. They're providing fuel to the Navy right now for testing and certification for uh, both jet fuel for planes and diesel fuel for the ships. And I think there are more and more companies coming out who have more innovative approaches. It can be very water-intensive, though. Well, it's uh, some of that can be recycled as well. I think there are a lot of innovations here that are going along, and it's kind of coupled in with our work on uh, the genome and our ability to take what we're doing in that sector, um, the biology that we've advanced so much in the last 20 years, 
with our energy picture at the same time. Make, make a refinery at the cellular level. Jim Sweeney, can, can uh, biofuels scale? Oh, I think they can scale, but, but for those that rely upon crops that are grown on either degraded land or land that you don't want to use otherwise for your food supply, there's only a limited amount of such land, and there's only a, there's some maximum rates that you can have crops grow on that. So that sets an upper limit on what you can do from that type of biomass. Algae is quite different because you you put it in a in, in more industrial process. Um, algae, I have lots of hope for, but there's a lot of things that we don't know, and particularly in how can you get it at a reasonable cost. And and that that will be a, yet to be seen. And... Uh, I, I hope your investments in those companies uh, turn out well. <laughs> T.J. Glothier? Could I take a, a little different turn from what we're going to talk about and uh, take a, a look at sort of 25-year increments? And I, I guess I'd like to acknowledge how much success we had in the 25-year period from 1975 to 2000 and that we need to challenge ourselves to do the same thing in the next 25 years. In fact, President Obama in his State of the Union put out some goals for 2035, 25 years from now, uh, which I think could be done only if we really mobilize the country, groups like yours. From 1975 forward, in that year, uh, Gerald Ford was president. You were, I think, uh, working at the White House at that time. And there was a project, Independence, that was established, how we were going to become independent from oil. And it put forward a series of policies and projections And what was interesting to me at the macro level was at that time we were using 75 quads, 75 quadrillion BTUs of energy for the whole country, of all forms of energy. And the projection was by the turn of the century, we'd be at 150 quads. So we would basically have increased 75 quads. The reality was that by the turn of the century, we actually increased slightly less than 25, one-third of the growth. And it was... In every sector, the autos we've talked about with CAFE standards, uh, industry made huge changes because costs went up and they looked at their processes and realized they could save a lot of energy and cost. And the residential sector also, we started regulating refrigerators and a whole lot of appliances. Uh, We found that there were ways for us to make major changes and harness the engineering expertise of this country. We, We succeeded. What we need to do now, I think, is figure out how do we mobilize that same sort of ingenuity for our power plants, for our appliances and other devices that are using electricity or other forms of energy for our transportation sector, and uh, it really make that same change. The projections out of the government right now, the Energy Information Administration, part of DOE that does its projections, in their latest forecast, their business as usual forecast, 25 years from now, we're still using more energy than today. Not very much, but it's still increasing. Mm-hmm. What can we do to change that paradigm and, and use the successes of the past? Yeah, yeah it's, it's important to note that every president uh, starting with Nixon has declared uh, as goals greatly reduced oil imports. Uh, president uh, Nixon declared Project Independence. By 1985, we were going to be independent of oil, all foreign oil imports. Uh, it, we defined two concepts. We defined the concept of independent, 
and it redefined the concept of 1985. <laughs> Other than that, but and then then Jimmy Carter declared that the energy area was the moral equivalent of war. Very unfortunate acronym because acronym was meow. And, but that said, with every president trying to go ahead with this goal, we have made tremendous progress. But that stalled in the last 10, 15 years. And we got to unstall it. Jim Sweeney is director of the Pre-Court Center for Energy Efficiency at Stanford University. Our other guests at Climate One today are T.J. Glothier, former Deputy Secretary of U.S. Department of Energy, and Tony Knowles, former Governor of Alaska. We're going to go to audience questions and bring out the mic. Again, if you'd like, on this side, you'd like to come around there. And uh, we'll form a queue right here for audience questions. Tony Knowles, all these things will take time. And meanwhile, while we transition away from, from oil, whether it's biofuels, efficiency, uh, electric cars, etc., we're still going to need to drill to satisfy our habit. Should we drill more in Alaska uh, domestically to substitute for foreign oil? I think it's got to be done on a case-by-case uh, method. Uh, approach to ensure safety, uh, both in terms of worker safety uh, and environmental safety. And we have the standards. Uh, we should apply those standards uh, strongly. Uh, and I think that there is adequate uh, access to the resource to do it correctly. So do you think after the BP disaster in, in the Gulf of Mexico that uh, existing regulations and standards are sufficient for, say, drilling in the Arctic off Alaska, or should we raise the bar uh, even further? Um, I think the jury is out on that. Uh, served on, serving on that uh, oil spill commission was a former lieutenant governor of the state of Alaska who served with me, mm-hmm. uh, Fran Ulmer, and they took a very hard look at the next generation of uh, offshore drilling, and particularly in Arctic environment. And they made some very strong recommendations. As I say, I haven't uh, gone over those yet. Uh, I've talked with Fran about them. Uh, and that she believes that, yes, there is a way, uh, but it's not going to be with the business as usual to where that the regulatory body and the industry that was regulated uh, have some sort of wink and a nod uh, about complying with some very important rules. And we hope to have the co-chairs of that commission here with us at Climate One uh, later this year. Tony right. Knowles is former governor of Alaska. I'm Greg Dalton. Let's have an audience question. Hi, William Brink, um, There seems to be a lot of wishfulness these days about individual uh, action, behavioral change. Hold on one second. Is that mic on? Okay. Okay. Let's start again. William Brent from Weber Shanwick. Yeah, there seems to be a lot of wishfulness these days about uh, the, the role of individuals in behavior change in achieving greater energy efficiency in the economy. Um, do you feel that there, that's warranted, uh, the hope for that, or do you feel that the, the real change is only going to come from a technology buffer between resources and behavior? Um, Jim Sweeney? Jim's a we're, 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 we're doing a lot of work in that at Stanford. First, um, if you look at the, the studies of what would be cost-effective for consumers, there's significant opportunities for energy efficiency um, people talk about those as a low-hanging fruit. Unfortunately, some of that fruit has been low-hanging for decades now and hasn't been picked, which means there's a reason. And, and uh, getting at those behavioral reasons are very important. And, and we've got to start uh, bit by bit t- 
taking into, uh, those into account. I'll give you two examples of behavior where, where they're addressable. If we take um, rental, rental versus owner-occupied homes and look at things like um, insulation in the ceilings and double-pane windows, there's a two-to-one difference between implementation and owner-occupied um, implement those about twice as much as, as in uh, rental buildings. Uh, the, renter, the owner of the rental building pays the capital cost. The person who rents pays the, the operating cost, and the incentives aren't aligned. Well, there's ways that we can start getting those incentives much more aligned, better disclosure rules, better information as, as homes are rented. Uh, Would you have a policy mandate? Uh, I'm not. I'm not sure all of the ways, but I would like to have really good information disclosure and policy mandates, among other things that we might do. Second, uh, in, in behavior is when we uh, buy electricity. We buy electricity by turning on light switches and turning on televisions, changing the temperature of our air conditioner. There's really no price tags that any of us see. It's like going to the supermarket and purchasing among different stakes, but there's no prices there. You never see a price, but only at the end of the month you get a bill that says groceries, $400. You wouldn't be a very smart shopper. Right now, that's basically how we buy electricity. I think that the opportunities with smart meters give us the ability to have that type of feedback to consumers. It's not being implemented very much yet. There's a lot of research that has to be done. That's another significant area. Um, another behavioral issue that we've done is uh, programmable thermostats. The one survey showed that of programmable thermostats, 70% have never been programmed. It's like the VCRs that you all remember that always flash 12 uh, because you never program them. <laughs> now if you buy a smart uh, programmable thermostat, in most cases, you do it, buy it from Honeywell, or it's already programmed in an EPA Energy Star pattern. That's a behavioral change. We've changed what the default option is, and that's making a difference. So there's a wide range of things, all of which I will call behavioral, that collectively can make a, different, a, a large difference not large enough to substitute for the need for cleaner supplies of energy, but it's got to be an important part of the package. Next question, please. Hi, my name is Owen Goldstrom from PG&E. And I don't know much about the CAFE standards, but I was wondering how that would change with electric vehicles and whether you would still be able to implement the CAFE standards as the adoption of electric vehicles increases. Remember when the Chevy Volt came out, they claimed that at 230 miles a gallon or something because they combined the electric uh, propulsion with the gasoline propulsion. TJ? Well, yes, the CAFE standards do include a credit for electric vehicles, or, or basically you calculate what the equivalent mileage is, and you average that in with your other vehicles. So there is a way to do it. Um, the Volt, the Leaf, uh, which is all electric, are cars that the, in the fleets uh, are being factored in importantly. The manufacturers of those are actually looking at getting at using those credits in order to get their averages where they need to be. Of course, hey, I was going to say, remember, under the CAFE standards, you don't really average miles per gallon. You average gallons per mile. So if, if you move, say, from... Um, 
20 miles per gallon to 40 miles per gallon, it's the same reduction as moving from 40 miles per gallon to infinity, because 20 to 40 cuts in half the use of use of energy, and another from 40 to infinity takes the same amount out of the system. So, so because they average in terms of uh, gallons per mile rather than miles per gallon, calling it 200 miles per gallon, a thousand miles per gallon, or doesn't make any difference, essentially, in how you average it in that way. Tony knows? And, and in CAFE, remember the A is the average. So when you have a very efficient car, then you re- release the pressure to increase the efficiency of your least efficient cars. So that's part of the uh, weaknesses, I think, in CAFE standards. Only if you don't adjust them over time, but if you keep adjusting over right. time, taking into account the progress you've made, then then you can compensate for that. We haven't been very good at that. There have been decades where we, they've been flat. Right? Oh, we've, we've been miserable in the past. Obama's been taking um, a much better stance in what he's been doing. Both he's increased it to about 35 miles per gallon and has asked the administrative agencies and Department of Transportation to, to annually reassess where we're going and to continue doing that. There's another issue with electric cars, though. As more electric cars come onto the market and we debate how fast that'll happen, uh, there's a problem with funding infrastructure. People aren't paying the gasoline tax that funds roads, et cetera. So, Jim Sweeney, how will we fund infrastructure if I'm driving around in my, in my Tesla, I wish I could afford one, but and, and not paying any gasoline tax for the roads I'm driving on? I think this should be a, we should redefine it as a fuel use tax, where electricity is the fuel use. Uh, so that would be one step. But actually, I, I believe that we, we need to have taxes that are more, directly related to the miles that are driven. Uh, a very fuel-efficient car that uses, say, electric, all-electric vehicle will have the same needs for the road infrastructure as a, very, as a much less efficient one. So we've got to further define it instead of uh, taxing on a gallons purchased or the energy equivalent to gallons on, on, miles, on miles driven. And There's a lot of ways that we can start doing that now that we have much better measuring and monitoring devices that you can put into cars. So Big Brother's going to watch how many miles I drive? Uh, They they could, or they they may start rolling this into the the annual... when, when you do the smog test, by the way, they, they do look at it, because when you do a smog test, they know exactly the mileage of a car. So at that time, it rolled it into that re-registration of the vehicles that so you can put in that, those fees uh, without giving the government any more information than they're already collecting. T.J. Glasser, did you want to come in on that? Uh, no, I think that one of the states, I think it's Washington State, has actually made a proposal like this to have a, an annual charge uh, for electric vehicles that would be part of the registration uh, fee every year. I want to come back. We talked on natural gas earlier, uh, and, and Tony Knowles mentioned it's an excellent way to improve efficiency for the heavy-duty fleet for 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 trucks. Uh, but there's a downside to all energy sources, and in natural gas, there's a lot in, around the extraction right now in terms of fracking and, and what might be clean on the combustion side. 
There's questions about the extraction of at least shale gas, uh, which we were you know, ten years ago. I think we looked at you, Tony. You might have mentioned this to me that we were, thought we were going to import natural gas, and now it looks like we might export natural gas. But let's talk about the the potential side effects of of the extraction, and particularly fracking. T.J. Glothier. Uh, well, I do work with a company that drills those wells, so I need to be careful. Uh, it doesn't do the fracking, but it drills the wells where you drill down about 5,000 feet and then drill out maybe eight to 10,000 feet. And the controversy that's been in the public uh, arena recently about this, I think, does warrant a really careful examination. Um, Pennsylvania, I think, is now really looking carefully at it. The Marcella Shale there is a, a major new development of uh, natural gas. New York State has put a moratorium on these wells for a while until they figure out what to do. I'm convinced that the problem is very uh, limited. It's a very small number of these deposits where you may go into an area that does have uh, some significant contamination, benzene or other things that will get out, or, or that the casings of the wells are not being done properly. So part of it is enforcing our current regulations properly so that we really make sure the wells are done right. And part of it is I think we're going to get to a point where we regulate them a little more and require more data that is already possible. There's a logging system behind the drill bit that sends out a lot of information about exactly what you're drilling through. If we just keep that information, if we look at it and we say, hey, in some cases, don't finish this well out. Uh, this is not a place that you should drill one. I think that'll work, and it's going to be less than 1% of the wells. But I think it's a process now we need to go through and make sure we're doing it properly. Do you think that the companies doing the fracking should disclose what's actually in the fracking fluid? Because that's been some controversy about it. They're not disclosing what's in these these chemicals put into the ground, maybe near water tables, maybe not. They should at least. I think there needs to be some way to do that. Uh, they claim that's part of their uh, competitive advantage that they have a little better set of fluids than others. Uh, but there needs to be some way that we could go ahead and and do that. And I think we can. Uh, the benefit of this is that we've changed the amount of our natural gas supplies in this country dramatically, and the price of natural gas, which about three years ago hit a high of $14 a million BTU, is back down to $4 a million BTU. Uh, it actually was projected to be $6, $7 and rising over time, and this has hit companies like the one I help uh, dramatically. They're not doing nearly as well because the economics aren't as good. But it's great for the American public, it's great for our energy sector to have natural gas supplies that are much larger and more, well, they're all domestic. They're all here. Uh, we're not actually dependent on any foreign suppliers. Tony Knowles? Um, absolutely. We should shine the flashlight in on the industry, what it does, and I think they should embrace it. Uh, there are going to be some areas that should not be available for uh, shale gas development. Take, for instance, the Catskills watershed uh, above New York City. New York City is the largest single supply in the world of un unprocessed and unfiltered water because of that incredible watershed that they have. Uh, it would cost billions of dollars for them to have to process all that water as most communities have to process their water. So they're going to be extraordinarily and deservedly so careful about whatever happens in the Catskills. So there's going to be protected areas. But at the same time, this is a ubiquitous resource that can meet the standards. I think TJ is absolutely right. It can do it. But I'd like to see industry, and maybe I'm naive, but I'd like to see them embrace the EPA 
in protecting clean water because that is such a important value that we have as a society. Protect the clean water. And what will happen, I think the technology will cause it to go from maybe $4 in MCF to maybe $6 in MCF. But that's the price because if they don't pay that price, there will be a externality of someone, when a mistake happens, paying a much more severe price as a society. So open it up, do it. It's a great resource, but make, make sure that it pays its fair price. The, I believe the extraction of fracking was exempted from the Clean Water Act in 2005. Do you have any views, Tony or TJ, about whether it ought to be the Clean Water Act ought to apply to, to fracking in the fluids that use the millions of gallons used per, per well? I agree with where the governor is. I think it needs to be regulated and the public needs to be protected. Uh, this is something that's and, important, but not uh, to somehow give it an exemption or a free ride. And if you drill through the aquifer, then you're dealing with, with water that you drink and should be part of the Clean Water Act. I yeah. think it's pretty straightforward. <laughs> Jim Sweeney, would you agree? Actually, I agree. I, I think that there are problems that are bubbling up with, with uh, um, the fracking system, but, but I think it's it's a new enough technology that's probably not regulated as well as it should be. And I think we're going to be able to fix that and still get a very large supply of, of natural gas. But that's going to be tugging and pulling on each, each side, where members of the industry is going to want less regulation, and people who are protecting the environment is going to want more regulation. And we'll muddle through and we'll get that right. But I have lots of confidence in our ability to get more natural gas through this and to protect the environment, but uh, we're not quite there yet. Jim Sweeney is director of the Precourt Center for Energy Efficiency at Stanford University. Our other guests today at Climate One are T.J. Glothier, former deputy secretary of the U.S. Department of Energy, and Tony Knowles, former governor of Alaska. I'm Greg Dalton. We're at the end here. Just want to wrap it up by bringing back to California. I learned some figures in researching for this program, where our oil actually comes from this state. Tony, uh, used to be uh, in 2000, 20% of it came from Alaska. Now it's that 10%. Uh, 25% Saudi Arabia, 19% Iraq, and 17% Ecuador. So we're going from domestic oil to more foreign oil in this state. Uh, less from Alaska, as I believe your fields are in decline, unless we drill new ones. Uh, so where, where is this headed? TJ? Well, and if you went back even further, we used to produce the oil ourselves, you know, if you go back 100 years. So it's been a, a steady process. I think if you add to that also, where does our electricity come from, uh, that you have an overall picture where you say we want to, in fact, try to get more domestic sources, more renewable power supplies, uh, things of that sort, and if we are successful in converting some of our transportation over to rapid transit, uh, high-speed rail, and to more hybrid and electric vehicles, you, you can look at the whole picture. So I think your your question uh, is an important one. You know, this is a, a area we need to work on. Jim Sweeney, last word. It's following the national trends. We used we now are importing most of our most of our oil been happening nationwide. It's been happening in California. Um, it's an issue that we've got to come to grips with. And, and as I say, each president has said we'll come to grips with it, has set goals. None of them have been met. I hope it'll be different. Tony Knowles, as a Democratic governor, a Democratic president recently pledged to get us off foreign oil. Can he do what 
previous five or six presidents were unable to do? It's a total of eight presidents that have pledged. Eight presidents, And John Stewart has an incredible collage of all eight of them saying the same thing. Yeah. Um, The answer to it is yes, and, and we need the balance. First of all, we need a focus on making sure that we reduce our use of oil by a targeted amount, which can be done with current technology without a undue influence on our budget or deficit. And secondly, we need to clean up a cleaner, more sustainable uh, production of energy, which we can also do with the same kind of balance. And it's not, it's not that difficult. It's just we need the, the energy and the focus to do it. We have to end it there. Our thanks to Tony Knowles, former governor of Alaska, T.J. Glothier, former deputy secretary of energy, and Jim Sweeney, director of the Precourt Center for Stan- uh, Energy Efficiency at Stanford University. I'm Greg Dalton. Thank you all for listening to Climate One, and thanks to our audience here in San Francisco. You did really well in question that.